Mark Stein Show. Now, here's Andrew Lawton, in for Mark. Welcome to another substitute guest host level edition of the Mark Stein Show here. This is your vice president, senior deputy assistant of Canadian affairs. I get the adjectives mixed up. I think that's it. But the title changes. It's uh, very fluid, much like the Canadian-U.S. exchange rate, I suppose. In any case, Mark is tied up this week, as you may have seen, guest hosting Fox News primetime. He's actually doing it right at this exact second, so I just decided to kick down the door of the studio. I had such a good time the last couple of weeks, I I figured he uh, wouldn't mind, or it's more of that uh, perhaps better to beg forgiveness sort of thing. Good show coming up. We'll be speaking later on with Coach Linda Blade about how transgender activism is destroying women's sport and also forcing people to believe a lie. You know, I have to say, in the previous edition of the program, on the eve of Canada Day, or Dominion Day as I prefer to call it, I had said that what was going on in Canada was something that would be just such a a completely foreign concept to most Americans, which was the complete cancellation and disavowal of Canada Day, and actually of Canada as a country, of the existence of Canada by so many of the elites. And indeed, on Parliament Hill and government buildings across the country, the flags were at half-mast on Canada Day. They were lowered to half-mast because no one was allowed to celebrate Canada Day. Dozens of cities cancelled any celebrations they would have been having, not because of COVID gathering restrictions, but because they didn't feel it was appropriate to celebrate the country because of its past treatment of Indigenous people. And again, I remarked that this would be so foreign to anyone in the United States, in France, in Great Britain, anywhere else in the world. And I should say, Boris Johnson did a better Canada Day greeting than Justin Trudeau did. He did a video talking about the great friendship and familial relationship between the UK and Canada going back over the years, which was a lot more than the, well, you know, we have to look at our past in context statement that Canada's own prime minister gave. But alas, my optimism for just how enthusiastic Americans were going to be about their own national celebration, Independence Day, was a little bit overstated. Not entirely. I think even a lot of left-wing politicians went through the motions and pretended to celebrate Independence Day, but not exclusively. A lot of the resistance came from the media itself. In Salon, one article said, How are we supposed to celebrate July 4th after Juneteenth? Well, perhaps the way you had been celebrating July 4th up until Juneteenth was made a national holiday. And then in the New York Times, of course, an article that said the American flag was alienating to some and needed to be reevaluated. And trying to basically say that if you fly an American flag, you as might as well be saying you are a Trump supporter. It's become a signal, as they say, a dog whistle associated only with people who believe one particular thing. Celebrating your country is not supposed to be partisan. It's not supposed to be something that is divided along left-right lines, but increasingly that is the case. And a lot of the people on the left who disavow celebration of their country, they're against the existence of the country, the very foundation of the country. And what do they value? What do they cherish? Nothing that is of any substance it increasingly looks like. And this self-flagellation, this groveling at the altar of wokeness does not 
particularly accomplish anything. It's quite destructive because you tend to be pulling the rug out from anything and everything that exists as a foundation in your country and in your society. And this is something that transcends the border. The same attitudes that are at play in Canada with Canada Day are certainly underpinning a lot of this criticism from the media about Independence Day. And it's only a matter of time before you are unable to count the statues that are coming down, the names of schools and offices and government buildings and bridges that are being changed, and it becomes easier to count the ones that still remain. And that's the case in Canada. Even something you'd think that you could take for granted, like when a statue comes down, it being put back up, is no longer the case. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, statues of Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth II were taken down, and those statues, there is no indication that they will be put back up. No indication they will be re-erected, because it's a lot easier for the government to just go along with the mob and say that these things are anachronisms in the modern society. And of course, they were never going to just stop at statues. Dozens of churches have been vandalized or set ablaze in Canada. And the response from the Calgary police? This tweet. Officers are investigating vandalism at 10 churches. We must never forget residential schools are a part of our legacy that destroyed the lives of so many Indigenous families. But vandalism like this only creates further division, fear, and destruction. Burning churches in Canada has become the norm. Again, almost too many to count. Many churches, in fact, on Indigenous property serving Indigenous congregations. But white, woke liberals decide that the church is the enemy and are igniting these churches in flame. And you'd think that people concerned about religious freedom in Canada would speak up and say that this is wrong. Well, it took Justin Trudeau a week to say anything about it. And just this week, the executive director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, an organization that is supposed to stand up for, well, I don't know, I think the name says it, doesn't it? Civil Liberties, that we should burn them all down. That's what the civil liberties lawyers in Canada are saying in response to stories of arsons at Canadian churches, to burn the ones down that you missed. And the response to someone saying to burn them all down, well, yes, but what else are you supposed to do in the face of oppression? That was a response by one law professor in Toronto. Another advisor to Justin Trudeau, Gerald Butts, said that, well, it's understandable why people would want to. So there's an entirely legitimate debate afoot in Canada right now as to whether it is okay to burn down churches because of your contempt for the country in which you live. And this attitude is definitely not confined to Canada. The border may be closed, but this is seeping into the United States, which is why it is an entirely uncontroversial position for the media to stake out that, well, you know what, maybe the 4th of July just isn't the thing we want to be celebrating. There are a number of ways that a foreign adversary can seek to influence a person. Do you agree with that? Yes. Financial? Yes, that can be one. Uh, romance, you said it's another. Yes. It's Eric Swalwell's Chinese Penetration of the Day.
It is the 100th birthday of the Chinese Communist Party last week, and unfortunately, German operatives had to put a little bit of a damper on Chairman Xi's celebrations by arresting a Chinese spy who had been running a think tank in Germany and providing Chinese intelligence with information going back 10 years. The man identified as Klaus L. was allegedly contacted by Chinese intelligence on a trip to Shanghai in 2010 and over the course of the last 10 years was feeding information to Chinese intelligence with a great deal of regularity. And you may think, okay, a German think tank guy was actually a Chinese intelligence operative. Big whoop. That's basically, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, a pretty common occurrence. Well, it turns out he was also an operative with the German Federal Intelligence Service going back 50 years. Klaus L. had been providing since the time he was 25, he's now 75, information to German intelligence and decided around 2010 he was tired of supporting the Germans and switched loyalties, it sounds like, to China. And all the while he was running some other thing. It's a wonder he found time to do any think tanking while uh, providing intelligence to both Germans and the Chinese. Interestingly enough, this story comes while the German government is giving, I think it's $28 million over the next few years to strengthen independent China competence. And by that, they mean set a German-Chinese relationship for universities and research institutions that is separate from the American-centric relationship that they feel is just a little bit too critical of China and too willing to expose China's abysmal human rights record. And this idea of what Germany calls a relationship, quote, based on European values, unquote, can very easily be subsumed by Chinese values. This is the whole premise behind China's massive Belt and Road Initiative, this neo-colonial effort that puts China in the driver's seat of connecting the world, including very handily Europe. So these institutional partnerships are not at all benign, and this delusion of international cooperation with China only benefits China. You know, whenever I've been guest hosting this show and we spotlight a new example of Chinese penetration, something that has become more and more apparent is how easy it is for the Chinese. We don't even make them work for it. Western institutions are rolling out the red carpet and generally speaking, allowing Chinese influence in. You look at this German intelligence officer, all it takes is one trip to China and bam, they've got him. When it comes to scientists at a lab in Winnipeg, the Canadian government invites them in. So this German effort to create a China Research Institute, which is supposed to be independent, some people are saying, of American influence. That's the real threat they're concerned about in China research, that a lot of it is too America-dominant, which criticizes China's human rights record. Well, you can't have that if you are researching what's happening in China. No, no, your research has to find no human rights abuses whatsoever to be kosher. So I have no doubt that's what this new institution is going to do quite easily. Find nothing wrong whatsoever, and that's the way it's supposed to go, evidently. 
And while we're talking about uh, global politics here, I'd be remiss to not point out this amusing story from Iran. You may not uh, realize this. I don't know if your town has one of these, but Iran has a countdown to Israel's annihilation clock. Every town has one of these, I thought. When the clock hits zero, that is supposedly going to be when Iran has finally realized its goal of wiping Israel off the face of the earth. Well, the clock didn't exactly reach zero, but this week it did go dark. It stopped working because of power outages that had (laughs) swept across Iran. So if you were driving by and you saw there was no time on there, you might have been very excited as an Iranian thinking, oh, my Israel's gone. Nope, it's just that Iran can't even manage to keep its Israel annihilation clock powered up, but supposedly will manage to annihilate Israel. I'm not optimistic. Maybe the new guy, uh, Ibrahim Raisi, will do better, but uh, maybe he should start at the power grid before having these uh, grandiose ambitions of decimation. Israel. But you know what? Points for trying. And now from the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. With the United Kingdom set to release pretty much all of its COVID restrictions in the coming weeks, unless Boris Johnson decides to postpone it yet again, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. It's harder to find bona fide British wanker coppers for this segment, but I do believe that, as I've been saying, I can invoke guest host prerogative and pick them from other parts of the Commonwealth. Today we go to Australia. Well, mask mandates are lifting around the world, restrictions are going away, large sporting events, concerts are going back. In Australia, in some parts, you still have to walk around wearing a mask even when you are outdoors. And it's this rule that resulted in an Alice Springs man by the name of Hayden Williams being harassed because he was not wearing his mask while he was outside drinking his coffee. So I'm just drinking my coffee. And these officers have started following me <clears throat> and harassing me. What's your name and badge, mate? Aboriginal uh, Community Police Officer Liam Presley. Yep. 7415. What's Hi. your name? What's your name? What's your name and badge number? What's your name? I don't have to be you're, a pe- you're a peace officer, you're a servant of the people. I'm not being rude here, I'm not risking anything. Okay, listen, I need you to listen to me. Okay. Okay, so there, there's a pandemic going on. This is a very vulnerable community. There's lots of sick people. I need there's you lots of to sick provide people. your name and your reason for the I do not have to provide my name because I have not committed so, so you an are offense. Committing an offense. I have okay. not committed an offence. I need, no, I need I have you to wear a mask. Okay. I'm drinking a coffee. I do not have to wear a mask okay? while I'm drinking a coffee. Hey, Thank you. Hey, if you do not provide your name and um, wear a mask, you will be arrested, alright? You're threatening me. Oh, you're under arrest. As you hear there, followed 
questioned, forced to identify himself under the auspices of he's committing the crime of drinking coffee, and when he doesn't comply, doesn't put on the mask, doesn't identify himself, arrested, put in handcuffed, and eventually fined. Like, this offends me both as a civil libertarian and as a coffee drinker. Now, I don't know if you're supposed to just forgo coffee altogether. I don't know if you have to, you know, just gradually lift the mask just enough to take a sip, then close it. Maybe you have to drink your coffee with a straw. It might burn your tongue, but you know what? That's the safest way to do it in the era of COVID and, you know, stick the straw in the cup and, you know, up the mask. I don't, I don't know what you're supposed to do uh, to drink your coffee in Australia. I guess the answer is just don't leave home. That's basically what these wanker coppers want of people. And it's easy to laugh at this. But there are people who go along with this and think this is an entirely normal way to live. I was actually in an airport lounge a couple of weeks back, one of my few flights since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And at the airport in Ontario, you have to have a mask on unless you are eating or drinking. And one of the attendants of this lounge was walking around and I had literally my coffee cup in my hand and I happened to be just resting it on my chest at that exact moment with my mask hanging from one ear because I figured that was the easiest way to make it look like I was following the rules and hadn't just completely abandoned them. And I had brought the coffee down for not a second before I was told, you have to put your mask on. And I, I said, are you serious? I, do, do I need to put it on between sips? He said, well, I'm just, just saying, you have to wear your mask when you're not drinking. And I asked him, well, I, yes, but I mean, I literally, I'm holding the mug right now. My mask is ready when I'm finished drinking, when I get to the bottom of the coffee. And he was just saying, no, you just need to know. And it was a preemptive warning. Maybe I just looked like a troublemaker. Who knows? But that preemptive warning that once you've swallowed the last sip of whatever you're drinking, that mask better go on. And the irony, of course, being that there was no one within, you know, what, 14 feet of me, except for the guy telling me that I needed to put my mask on. I have a feeling that when the time comes, if the time comes, I live in Ontario, so it's a moot point. I don't think it's actually going to happen. I live in a province that has a, a three-step reopening plan, and the third step isn't actually reopening. So I, I'm not anticipating anytime soon having mask freedom in my community and in my province. But I have a feeling that if and when such a moment does come, there will still be businesses that insist on it and individuals that insist on wearing it. And there there is a, a tremendous wave, I think, of lockdown Stockholm syndrome that is existing in such large numbers that, again, people who harass others, whether it's in an airport lounge or even worse, on a street in Australia for not wearing a mask when you're drinking a coffee, that people think that is a normal way to live. And it's either that they're drunk on power, perhaps they are true believers. They think this is what the science says. But either way, it is not how a normal or healthy society is supposed to exist. And it's not, I was going to say function, it isn't even a functioning society when people are so terrified of the boogeyman. And now you've got all the strains, the, you know, the Delta strain, the Lamba strain, who knows, we're going to be up to Omega. It'll just be like you're walking down fraternity or sorority row before long with all of these different strains. And every time one of these happens, especially in places like Canada and Australia, it becomes yet another impediment to this idea of re opening. And if you're looking at this and not realizing what should be so painfully obvious now, you need to pay attention. These folks do not want the lockdown to end. There are so many people where the lockdown has given them a sense of purpose and meaning that they do not want it to end. 
And I'm not talking about a healthy purpose in meeting, like people who discovered their long-lost desire to write a novel while they were in quarantine. I'm talking about people who realized that citizens can be controlled very easily. That once you say something is in the name of public health, everyone has to go along with it. But to those officers in Alice Springs, Australia, congratulations. You are, without a doubt, the Wanker Coppers of the Week. Well done. The Mark Stein Show presents Climate Change Cost It. Last week, I had a couple of people point out that I may have been just a little bit too dismissive of Biden Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm's theory, and and I guess the theory that CNN put to her, that the Surfside condo collapse in Florida was actually caused by climate change. And I perhaps downplayed the vast, wide-reaching implications, all of the many powers that climate change wields in 2021. So I thought we would introduce a new segment this week and look at all of the other things that climate change has caused. You can't keep up with them. We had to just pick very selectively which ones we would highlight for this particular segment. Number one, alcoholic wine. Yes, courtesy of the Globe and Mail, rising alcohol in wine is caused by climate change. Cabernets made in California in the 1970s had 12% alcohol. Most today are 14% or higher, including ones you'll get in Bordeaux or Tuscany or elsewhere that you care to take your wine from. And you may think this is just perhaps consumers that are a little bit happy to be more booze-laden than they were relative to the 70s. Who knows? No one's judging here. But no, 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 it's not about that. It is climate change that the Globe and Mail says is the biggest culprit for creeping alcohol levels because higher temperatures make for riper grapes with more sugar to convert to alcohol. Now, this is not the way you get a population on side with wanting to combat climate change. There's a reason that the, uh, you know, five and a half percent rosés are nowhere near as popular as the good stuff. So, yes, pour me another glass of that uh, nice climate change, perhaps something from Alsace bartender. And what else this week is caused by climate change? It looks like infertile fruit flies. Come to think of it, I am pretty sure I saw infertile fruit flies open for Def Leppard a couple of years ago, but I might be wrong about that. As the world warms, male fruit flies are losing their fertility, according to a study done by scientists in the United Kingdom. It's good to know they've had other things to look into over the past year than COVID. What else is it that is caused by climate change? Well, if you talk to Canadian parliamentarians, racism. That is at least the takeaway that I extract from this bill introduced by Liberal Member of Parliament Lenore Zan, a bill that passed through the House of Commons Environmental Committee, calling on the government to develop a national strategy to address in Canada environmental racism. 
Yes, the bill supposes that there is a link between race, socioeconomic status, and environmental risk. And I don't know if this means that uh, racism is causing climate change or climate change is causing racism, or perhaps they have a mutually reinforcing effect. But either way, Canadian taxpayers are the ones on whom it falls to pay for a solution to the scourge of, you know, racist avalanches or whatever the big problem is here. So, I mean, I guess when the meteorologists are warning of an incoming storm system, it is actually a system as in systemic racism. So, infertile fruit flies, boozy wine, and racism. All parts of this week's edition of Climate Change Caused It. On a more serious note, I wanted to turn to something that has been covered in drips and drabs in the last couple of weeks on Stein Online, and that is the upcoming participation in the Olympics by a New Zealand weightlifter who goes by Laurel Hubbard. And this is the first transgender Olympic athlete competing as a female despite being a biological male and if you look at Laurel Hubbard's performance stats you would not be particularly surprised that Laurel Hubbard is biologically a male. And now that Hubbard is off to the Olympics and instead of lamenting what this means for the strongest women in the world who are set to compete as well, we are supposed to celebrate this as a beacon of progress. Sport performance coach Linda Blade, who has a PhD in kinesiology and is the author of the fantastic new book, Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport, calls a spade a spade here. She says what people are being asked to do is believe and promulgate a lie. Linda Blade joins me on the line now. Linda, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for being with me. Thank you, Andrew. When we're talking about the transgender debates in society right now, a lot of people approach this from an ideological or philosophical basis. And it's not to say that you don't do that in, in your own approach to this. But first and foremost, you're coming at this from the question of what does it mean for sport and, and what does it mean for, for women's sport in particular? And I, I know that you've dealt with this in your role as president of Athletics Alberta when so many athletic organizations are going in this direction from which there really is no return, which is saying that if someone identifies as a woman, that's all it takes for them to to compete against women in sport. In fact, it gets even crazier than that, Andrew, because when I was looking closely at the Canadian policy, um, they literally are suggesting that, and I will quote from the suggested policy recommendations, trans individuals should be able to participate in the gender with which they feel most comfortable and safe, which may not be the same in each sport or consistent in subsequent seasons. So you could literally say one season I play on male hockey team, the next season I can play on a women's track team and go back and forth because, you know, gender is fluid. And so we should just let anybody play whatever they want in whatever category they want, whenever they want. And I just think that this is the undoing of sports. How can we how can we conduct sport this way? Not just season to season. Didn't that say from sport to sport? So if, if yes, you were doing really well sport. in one sport as a man, you could say, yeah, I'm going to do the 100 meter as a man. But, oh, no, I'm going to do the marathon as a woman. Exactly. You could do that. According to this policy, you could wow. do that. I mean, it's, it's that this is like way beyond the Olympics policy. This is the crazy Canadian one. 
And this is the one they want us to have in our sports in, in Canada. And I mean, can you blame me as president of the board of a certain sport here? Why I would say, now, hold on a minute. Hold on. This doesn't, this isn't going to work. I mean, literally, it's like saying you play hockey, you know, you have the, the blue line, you have all these lines. Well, we'll just take the lines away and you can do whatever you want. When a lot of the changes were made, specifically the International Olympic Committee, going back however many years, that if you had been as the preferred gender for a certain amount of time, you could compete, it was very abstract for a lot of people. You fast forward to now, and, and we have a, an Olympic weightlifter that's going to be competing, Laurel yep. Hubbard of New Zealand, yep. who is biologically a male. And when you look at Laurel Hubbard, you see a biological male and will be competing against women. And and these are very real situations for a lot of people. And a lot of uh, folks that I've seen have focused on that this is unique for the Olympics, but it's been happening, especially at the college and even high school levels as well, for, for several years now. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just say that what's allowing Laurel Hubbard to do this is the Olympic policy that came into play in 2015 and it's absolutely pro propagating two lies in particular. The first lie is that if you're a male and you self-identify, and in the case of the Olympic Committee, you you uh, maybe you can take you can reduce your hormones, you can go under hormone therapy, uh, cross-sex hormones, so you take female hormones for one year. Uh, you, that will bring your level of advantage, the male advantage, down right away to the female level which is saying all a female is, is a male without testosterone, which is just absolutely not true. We are a completely different design. We're a different category entirely. And by the way, all the studies have shown that the first lie doesn't work. You take hormones for one year and it shows that the, the strength advantage, which can be up to 50%, a punching advantage up to 160% if you're in boxing, for example, that will not diminish at all. And so these guys are taking hormones as if they're going to change into a woman. They're not. And, and, and it's not er erasing the advantage at all. So that's the first lie. Second lie is that, oh, well, not that many guys are going to do this. Not that many men are going to self-identify. You know, most men wouldn't do this. Well, you know what? They're doing it. So we have the hindsight now of six years since the policy was in place. And there are men in many levels, whether it's elite level down to the, the developmental level, are identifying, self-identifying into women's sports. And we're just supposed to stand back and say, oh, this is great. This is fine. We're just going to be nice. There's something you address in your book, which is the case of Cece Telfer at Franklin Pierce University, who went from 390th in one division when competing as a male and then identified mm -hmm. as a woman and within two years was national champion. And that in and of itself, that uh, trajectory, I, I think, is noteworthy. But what I think is probably one of the most illuminating examples of, of that lie you just expressed, not you personally, but the lie that you spoke of, no, but was, the reality yeah, of the was Telfer's yeah. coach saying, and I'm going to read a quote here, I've never met anyone as strong as her mentally in my entire life. Basically saying that it was her spirit and, you know what, competitive uh, competitive attitude that was the change. Nothing else. Yeah. That was the only thing to attribute her rise from 390th to first to. You know, this is so insulting, Andrew, because the fact is, if a coach says that, so a male body self-identifies into a female game, and then the coach says, oh, they were just better because they were mentally stronger. 
what does that tell us about all the other women in the competition? Oh, like we're somehow mentally weak? I mean, it, it's it's really gaslighting to a degree you can't even believe, actually. And, you know, it's even worse. Like the one guy who's like 6'2 and 220 pounds in Australia, Hannah Mouncey, who's trying to go into contact sports like handball and Australian rules football with the in the women's league and just crushing people. This person says, well, if you go against her, which, you know, he's saying he's a woman now, if you're saying, a, if you have a problem with her, him being big, well, you're just saying that big women aren't allowed in sports. Like it's, it's <laughs> you know, it's like the arrogance and self-perceptions, like the self-inward orientation of these people is amazing. They had, Not one time have I heard one of these people who transitioned from male into woman sports showing any, even the remote level of concern for like, maybe what is my impact on these other people here? No, I am entitled to just platform myself in any way I want to do it. Well, that actually, I think, raises a, an, an important question here, Linda, about what's behind this. Because is it coming from people that say biological sex doesn't exist? Any advantage that a biological male has over a biological female is purely coincidental? Or is it, in fact, coming from a place of people who say, yes, the bodies are different, but it doesn't matter because this idea of social justice is more important than sport fairness? Well, it's two things. So there's a group of feminists who want to believe that males are no different than females, the intersectional feminists. And I feel like this might be a way just to show that all of our biological differences are completely socially sort of defined or set in place, which we know is not true. I mean, so it's a denial of biology. The ones who acknowledge that there's a difference. So there's these other groups of people, uh, basically like even in the Olympic Committee, who say, oh, we definitely know that male bodies are different than female bodies, but you know, the human rights of these special males are more important than the human rights of the female athletes. And you know, we have this going on in Canada, actually with C-16, because Bill C-16 said, you can't discriminate on the basis of gender identity and gender expression, which people are interpreting to mean anything a person self expresses or desires should be accommodated. But we also have the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that expresses that there's a biological sex-based rights. So what we have now is a conflict between the people who are seeing it only as a human rights issue, which is more modern, and more traditionally, the charter-based right to, to not be discriminated against on the basis of your biological sex. So we have this clashing of rights and somehow it's, it's coming to a head. And for the non-Canadians, C-16 is the bill that uh, launched Jordan Peterson to fame some years ago when he yes. first started speaking out about this issue. And and these were all, I think, very predictable developments when you start to yes. uh, take in this very malleable interpretation of what gender is. And I, I want to turn, if we can, to doping, because you tackle doping in the book, and anyone who's even had a, a passing knowledge of sports knows just how serious doping is taken. Just last week, we had an Olympic athlete for something as benign, most people would say, as a bit of cannabis. That is thus disqualifying mm -hmm. her Olympic dream. The competitive advantage you get out of uh, identifying as a woman is vastly uh, more 
significant than the competitive advantage of having a bit of pot. And the idea that one will get you disqualified and the other gets you celebrated mm -hmm. seems to be a complete inversion of, of how seriously the Olympics takes doping. It's utterly disgusting and ridiculous and, and actually contradictory. I mean, even if you would say, let's take the, the people who really believe that uh, Laurel Hubbard is a woman, has always been internally a woman. Well, he, when he was a he, lived 35 years with high testosterone levels and then transitioned at 35. So what you could say is even if you believe that person's a female in their heart and soul, they have benefited from 35 years of testosterone doping then. That's what that means. And, and yet, you know, Shikari Richardson has a little bit of THC in her blood and can't run the race. And then it goes on. So then we have the Canadian woman, the, the, uh, the uh, Kim Goucher, who wants to breastfeed her baby at the Olympics, but that's not going to be allowed. Well, finally, they let her go. Like, she has to struggle to actually get her baby to the Olympics. We have people who are women who have large hairdos, African-American. They want to have a bathing cap that covers it, so a slightly bigger bathing cap. That's not allowed. So basically, a man that has up to you know 50% advantage and has benefited from a male person who has benefited from 35 years and then maybe thinks he's a woman, that's okay somehow with all of those like huge advantages and these microscopic little rules when it comes to what a female athlete wants. So this has been playing out for the last century actually. Whenever a woman or a female person wants some sort of a new level or a new thing in the Olympics, we have to go through petitions and, and, and years of lobbying and, and try to get this in. Like imagine it took 84 years to allow the Olympics uh, women to run the marathon, the Olympics, but then we, one year or two or two of arguing for trans people and now they're just allowed to walk all over our territory as if, you know, it makes no difference. So what the IOC is showing is really a um, bimodal policy uh, stance. When it's, if you're a male person, you know, you can just say whatever you want and get what you want. If you're a female person in the Olympics, well, we're going to take out that microscope and make sure that every single little thing you do is, is approved of. And I mean, it's losing, I'm sorry, but the IOC is losing credibility more than it ever has with this issue. Indeed, and one point that you and I actually spoke about in another interview is that the IOC has really given every other athletic organization kind of the political cover to make these changes themselves mm -hmm. because they say, well, if the Olympics yeah, says it's okay and, and so yeah. on. And I actually wanted to close on, on this thought because there are a lot of people that I've spoken to who are not political at all. They don't particularly care what your gender identity is. They just want to live their lives. Sure. And, and when you talk to them about this, it just doesn't sit right because on the surface, yeah. they know that men and women are different, that a male is going to have a much better physical uh, trait uh, for most Olympic sports without even trying compared to women in some cases, just by virtue of body size. But in the athletic organizations, are people true believers in this, or is it just complete fear? They don't want to go through the cancel mob. They don't want to be called a transphobe. So they go along with even though they know that it doesn't make sense. I think it's fear, Andrew. Everybody's worried about being canceled online or being, you know, uh, mobbed or in sports. I think a lot of these sports associations in Canada honestly believe that their funding will be cut if they don't go along with this, which is entirely not true. 
We're being gaslighted to believe that's true and that's just not true, at least not yet. And the reason I'm, I'm speaking out is I wanna, I wanna sort of cut this off at, at the pass before it's too late. And then all the organizations like mine get in trouble because we just don't have any guidelines left at all as to who competes in what category. Actually, we can't have sports. It is destroying sports. If we can't have guidelines and strict policies about who belongs in what category, then what are we doing, Andrew? What are we doing? Where's where, where sports? Well, and specifically, where's women's sports to the point you made well, a few moments ago? But I'll tell you, it's going to affect men's sports too because at the grassroots level, officials are literally frightened that there'll be a going up against C-16 and, and a lot of our officials, even for little boys, like in the competitions, those people are volunteers. And our volunteer class is just going to melt away and not help us uh, stage competitions, tournaments, anything, because people are getting afraid. And this is my point in the book. Yes, it's primarily hurting women, but you're going to destroy the infrastructure at the ground level of people feeling comfortable and happy helping with sports. And the minute we have all the hockey parents and the soccer moms and people just running away from it saying, I, I can't deal with this. I can't be an official telling some kid they don't belong to that kid. Like, Everybody's starting to get up uptight about it, and it's very small right now. Yes, but I'm saying I'm I'm issuing the warning signs and the warning sounds that this is going to really affect all of grassroots sports. And if we don't get a handle on, we listen. We already have the policy of no bullying. We've been spending the last 15 years in Canada because of the anti-bullying sort of movement, and of course, it's very good, safe sport. We got to make sure nobody gets bullied. If you're wearing a hijab and you're a Muslim girl and you're in a race, like nobody says anything. We have these things. But the fact is, is that sport, the beauty of sport is that we, we can take our politics, our, our internal ideologies, whatever they happen to be, uh, and put them on the side and run with our biological bodies. And we protect everybody and give everybody respect. We've, we've, we already have those policies. I mean, wouldn't it be weird if we said, like you have to compete on the basis of your religion or if you have to compete on the basis of your you know, political party. Um, and this is an ideology just like those. So, so why are we bringing some sort of ideology into the sport realm when all we're asking is, let's just acknowledge biological sex exists, split the sport field up by biological sex and age and then wait sometimes. And all these other things, you just put that baggage on the sidelines and play your sport. Like, why should we be bringing this in? Oh, now you only can compete if you're a Christian in this particular, like, this is ridiculous. This is actually the most ridiculous thing because it's actually undoing what we already have spent a lot of time in sport figuring out. So we've already got all the answers, Andrew. We just have to follow our own policies and not bully people. Coach Linda Blade, author of the book Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. You can check that out at unsporting.com. Linda, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. Please save sports. Thank you for that, Linda. And I will say there's a, a tremendous amount of courage to anyone in athletics who speaks up against this. Athletes who have had, I'd say, a very good reason to be frustrated with this when they look at what the influx of transgender athletes into their sports has done to their own performance and their own ranking. And even then, when they speak up, they're called transphobes, they're pilloried, they're accused of not caring about human rights.
And of course, no one cares about their rights or the work they've put into their athletic career to get to where they are, which is wiped out in an instant, not because someone got better, not because someone outperformed them, but because someone was born a male and decided to compete against females. I mentioned it to Linda. I've had this conversation with people who are not political. They don't care about the culture war. They don't particularly care about trans issues. Be what you want. Be who you want. They don't care. But when you tell them this is happening, they know it doesn't sit right. And increasingly, we are in a society in which we are all to pretend that the emperor is, in fact, wearing clothes. And go along with it, lest you go through the cancel mob yourself for pointing out the obvious, which is that a male is going to do better in a weightlifting competition than a female. So good on Linda Blade for speaking out. That book, again, unsporting. We have to wrap things up here. My thanks to all of you for tuning in and to Mark for letting me hold down the fort. Oh, no, I said I, I, said I broke in. Okay, well, never mind. My apologies to Mark then once he uh, finds out I've been, uh, you know, fiddling around in the cockpit here. But in all seriousness, I do appreciate it. We will talk to you soon. Until next time, thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.